And let me begin by saying welcome again, now not only to those of you who are here in our traditional sanctuary, but welcome also and good morning, especially to those of you who are joining us right now in our contemporary service and online and via broadcast. I'm really glad that you're here. I'm glad we all have this opportunity to be together and to learn from God's word together and to grow together as followers of Jesus Christ. We're continuing with our series, Learning from the Words of the Ancient Prophet Isaiah, this morning. And I want to invite you, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, but if you'd like to follow along with today's readings, our ushers are going to come up the aisles in both of our worship venues. And if you'd like to borrow a Bible from them, and I'll be giving you page numbers as we go along, if you'd like to read those passages yourself and see where they are in the Bible, you can borrow one from them and just put that on the shelf in the back of the room after our worship services today in both of our worship venues. As I said, we're continuing in our series from the ancient prophet Isaiah today. And today is kind of the midpoint of our series. And we have the opportunity to kind of sum up where we've come so far and look ahead a little bit. And have an opportunity to summarize Isaiah's message a little bit and understand what it is that God showed him. What vision and insight did God give this ancient prophet into what's broken, into a diagnosis of what's wrong in our world. And what hope is there for God to heal it? This business of needing to know what's wrong is important. When something goes wrong, it's important to know what it is. I learned this in a fairly innocent way uh, about a half a year ago or so. I noticed that something was wrong with my truck. I noticed that the gas mileage had suddenly gone down about 20%. And the reason that I knew that is because I'm one of these nerdy guys who every time I fill up my tank in my truck, I have a little notebook in the center console and I write down. I write down the total mileage, I write down the trip odometer, the date that it is there, because I like to see how many times I fill up in a year. I write down even the price per gallon that I'm paying that day and the total amount of money that I paid because I like being depressed. And so I write down the amount of money that I spend on gas. But when people ask me, why do you do that? I mean, the honest answer probably is because my dad taught me to and now I can't stop. But what I like to say is because then I'll know if something goes wrong, or sometimes you can tell, if you get a sudden change in your gas mileage, you can tell. Well, that actually happened. I finally, I noticed that my fuel mileage was getting really bad and it's horrible to begin with, honestly, and so it's kind of a disaster. It went way down. So I took my car into the shop and I told them, I'm seeing this, can you check it out for me? And sure, of course, you know. And so they give me a call later and they said, you know, we checked the airflow sensors, the fuel lines, fuel systems, everything. We, just, we didn't see what the problem was, but then the mechanic was bringing it back from a test drive and he had it out of gear. It was a, it's a standard stick shift transmission, so it's out of gear and the brake wasn't on yet and he was stopped on a slight incline, but the truck didn't roll anywhere and realized they needed to check the brakes. The front brakes had been hanging up. So I'd been driving like five or 600 miles with the brakes partway on all this time. It's no wonder, the, it turns out that's actually bad for your gas mileage, in case you were wondering, and it's not exactly awesome for the longevity of your brake parts either. And it was good for me to find out what was actually wrong. But that's not only true in little things like, you know, car repairs or something, right? I mean, in our lives, sometimes things just don't perform the way they used to. Or we can tell that something's wrong. We kind of have gotten off the rails a little bit. And it would be great if we could get some insight into what's wrong. And you might notice this. This kind of thing creeps up in a variety of different symptoms and a variety of different ways in our lives. If you're a working person, you might notice that things at work just don't feel right anymore. You have a job you basically like doing and you work with pretty good people, but there's really no joy in it anymore. You don't feel a sense of fullness from what you contribute anymore. Something's just, something's gone wrong somewhere in the background. 
If you're a married person, maybe you notice this in your marriage or maybe in other relationships in life too, stuff just feels harder than it should. You know, it kind of feels like you're driving with the brakes on and you just climb in one hill after another and it doesn't seem like it should be that way. Maybe you're reading the news or hearing the news or seeing the news and you're looking around the world right now and going, this is not good. Something's not right. Gaza, Ukraine, Mosul, news domestically here at home. We're clearly not going about things the right way. Something's broken underneath. And I think that most of us get this. I think most of us have this intuition, this pretty deep suspicion that all the things that we experience as a problem are themselves maybe not the whole problem. They might not be just symptoms. They might really be problem, but underneath it is another thing, a deeper thing that's really causing all of it to go wrong. And we'd like to know what that is. It's not always easy to find out. You know, I wasn't thrilled to find out that I had a couple hundred bucks in brake repairs to do, but I needed to know what the problem was or it was just going to get worse. So also in our lives, it might cost us something. It might be uncomfortable to hear the news of what's wrong, but yet we need to know. We need to hear the diagnosis if there's going to be any hope for a cure for us. This is the kind of word, at least it's the beginning of the word, the beginning of the insight that God gave to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah lived a long time ago, and if you're anything like me, maybe many of us are kind of wondering, well, the insight, if God gave an insight about what's broken in the world to a guy who lived 2,500, 2,700 years ago, could that really be the same stuff that we still need to figure out nowadays? That's a reasonable question. On the other hand, sometimes I think it's easier to look at a situation that's a little bit external to yourself. See what's going on somewhere else. See what's broken in another set of circumstances and be able to recognize that and then look back at your own situation and kind of go, oh, yeah, I see. I'm still on the same boat. So what I'd like to do is show you some of these passages this morning, just read a few of them together from the prophet Isaiah and see what God showed them and then be able to see how that word and then eventually that word of hope also applies to us. So if you have your Bible with you, if you open it up with me to Isaiah chapter 1, we're going to kind of start at the beginning as we look back a little bit. If you have one of our Quest Bibles, it's on page 989. It's Isaiah chapter 1, verse 23. Some of these passages that we're going to read here at the beginning of the book of Isaiah are some of the passages in particular where Isaiah is speaking this word of diagnosis, this word of identifying what's wrong. And I think kind of a general category we can put on a couple of these verses is the word injustice. Isaiah is going to put his prophetic finger on the issue of injustice. Let me just give you a couple short examples. In Isaiah 1.23, he said, Your rulers, he's speaking to the ancient Israelites here, and some translations, your princes, your, your government, your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless, and the widow's case does not come before them. So Isaiah is identifying that part of the problem and what's broken in your world is that your government is unjust. Your leaders aren't doing what governments are there for, which is to protect those in the society who need it. The young, the vulnerable, the young and the old, the the orphans and the widows. And Isaiah recognizes that problem of injustice. But everybody likes to complain about government, right? And Isaiah is not just talking about the government here. He goes on and drives this diagnosis a little bit farther into the lives of shall we say, private citizens. If you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5, just a few pages farther in your Quest Bible, this would be page 994. In Isaiah chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, Isaiah goes a little farther. He says, Woe to you. 
Nothing happy ever started with woe to you, right? Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupants. Now, we've got to clarify a few things in this passage and then the next one also, because this is written a long time ago. And I don't think that we should abstract from this passage that God is somehow opposed to ever owning adjacent lots or something like that, adding house to house or field to field. But in an ancient Israelite context, what Isaiah is identifying here is, is the people who have passed down in their family from generation to generation to generation, as still happens in more agricultural parts of our own country and certainly in more agrarian societies around the world, the same family will own the same piece of land from generation to generation. And it is their, it is their means of producing an income for themselves and feeding themselves. And what Isaiah is seeing, there's a class of people who have become wealthier in Israel. And it's not necessarily that that he's upset about, but he's saying your wealthier classes are becoming wealthier and wealthier, and they're doing it on the backs of people, uh, on the backs of others. And this is unjust, Isaiah says. He puts the, his prophetic finger on the issue of injustice here. They're creating a situation that if Isaiah were alive in the 21st century, he might have learned the term generational poverty. And he sees it happening in ancient Israel and puts his finger on that issue. But the problems aren't all economic. Let me give you just one more example. And if you can turn back one page to Isaiah chapter 3, and this is Isaiah 3 verses 16 and 17. Before I read this passage, do you remember what I said about Isaiah living like over 2,500 years ago and sometimes it sounds like it? This passage is one of those, but we'll, we'll have to find a way to connect these words to our own context. Isaiah 3, 16 and 17. The Lord says, the women of Zion, Zion's like Jerusalem, the women of Zion are haughty, arrogant, walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, strutting along with swaying hips, with ornaments jingling on their ankles. Therefore, the Lord will bring sores on the heads of the women of Zion. The Lord will make their scalps bald. Okay. Sounds a little weird, I understand. I think we have to clarify a few things from Isaiah's context to ours. Again, I don't think that we should abstract from this passage that if your neck happens to be a little bit longer than average, that's somehow sinful or something, or that God has got a real anti-ankle bracelet program going on. That's not what we should infer from this. But rather, I think what we have here is the prophet Isaiah describing in terms that were appropriate to his context a growing culture of sexual immorality among the Israelites, a, a culture of physical objectification or obsession with physical beauty. And if we were going to re-speak these words in our own context, we'd probably use different terms. And I would like to think, and I don't know whether we always would, but I would like to think that we would also have the insight to see that both men and women together are contributing to the problem here. But Isaiah is saying that not only do we have an injustice problem, not only are we experiencing brokenness in that way, but we also have an immorality problem. Two I words, injustice and immorality. And he describes it in these terms. Now, we've come so far. This is kind of the first half of Isaiah's diagnosis. He, in the first half of Isaiah's diagnosis, he says, your relationships among one another at an at a interhuman level, your relationships with one another have become deformed. And they're deformed along these lines. You have a problem with just government. You have a problem with greed in your society. And you have a problem with physical objectification. Now, I don't mean to be a smart aleck about this. But do you think if God were to drop Isaiah into 21st century Twin Cities, Minnesota, he might still have a word to speak? 
No, no, I mean, have we solved the problem of governments doing what they should do? Have we solved the problem of letting greed run away with the dreams of our hearts? Have we solved the problem of a culture of physical objectification and obsession with beauty and temptation? I think Isaiah would still have a great word to speak to us to identify some of the same things that are a problem in our society today. But this is one half of the diagnosis, and there's another half where I think Isaiah drives it a little bit deeper, where he says we not only have a problem in our human relationships, but this is reflecting a problem we have in our relationship with God. So let me give you one more I word, and this is the word idolatry. Not only injustice and immorality, but also idolatry. Let me, sometimes Isaiah accuses the people in his day and age, and he speaks with kind of an accusing tone of voice, or so it would seem from the words that are captured in the book of Isaiah. And sometimes the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah were just perplexed by the problem of idolatry. They would look at, at other nations or look at people in the, among the Israelites who had been influenced by this and say, why, why would you do this? I don't get it. Why would you gather in a temple or a shrine around a statue and worship that thing as if it were God? There's one kind of funny passage in Isaiah where he tells a story about a woodcutter who cuts down a block of wood and cuts it in half. And with half of it, you make a fire and you roast your meat and over the coals, you bake your bread. And out of the other half, you carve a statue and then you bow down and worship it. And why would you do that? You just carved it half an hour ago. How could that be God? And sometimes Isaiah is perplexed and accusing about this. And sometimes we think that that sort of idolatry is a problem for other ages, other generations. And while it's true that most of us are not that tempted to gather around a shrine, or rather in a shrine around some sort of physical idol, nevertheless, we are still very, very tempted to serve that which is not God, to put other things first in our lives and Sometimes I even think about the physical objects or the images in our media or shopping malls or who knows where that we're willing to sacrifice for and that we think will bring blessing and hope and joy into our lives. And sometimes I think for as far as we've come in two and a half millennia, we haven't really come all that far. And Isaiah's word about this sometimes is a word that sounds pretty accusing, but sometimes he's got a different tone and a different set of imagery. Sometimes he's almost pleading and invitational and gracious with his fellow Israelites. And I want to give you an example of that also. You can read along if you'd like to. It's in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 through 31. That's page 1049 in your Quest Bibles if you want to find it that way. And this is kind of a famous passage where Isaiah describes the gracious and good character of God and invites his fellow Israelites, to know God as God. This is Isaiah 40, verses 28 through 31. Isaiah says, Do you not know? Have you, have you not heard? The Lord, and in translation, that's the proper name of God, not just any God, but this is the living God of Israel. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary, and he increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Isaiah is trying to get the message across to his contemporaries, and now his words speak to us also to say, there really is a real God. Have you not known have you not heard? There's a God who made the heavens and the earth and you. And he wants you to know him. God wants you to know his character, his grace, his love, his holiness, his call for your life. He wants you to know his love for you. And he wants you to honor him as God. 
Isaiah is speaking an invitation to reform our deformed relationships with God. Isaiah has diagnosed this problem on both sides, on our relationship with one another and our relationship with God. And he's got, there's two sides to the problem. I've given you three words for it. That might be confusing. I apologize. Injustice, immorality, and on the other hand, idolatry. We can kind of sum up the first half of Isaiah's message. We can sum up his diagnosis of the problem with those words. In fact, could we say those out loud with the contemporary service also? We're going to say injustice, immorality, and idolatry. Let's say that together. Injustice, immorality, and idolatry. Those are three pretty big, sometimes kind of old-fashioned sounding words for what God gave the prophet Isaiah to see was going wrong in their world and still is addressed to us today. But now let me ask you a question. Do you know who else saw the problem the same way? Who else saw that the problem with our lives and with our world is deformed relationships with other human beings and deformed relationship with God? Somebody who is much more famous than the prophet Isaiah and who actually fulfilled the message of the prophet Isaiah. This is what Jesus was also known to say. There's this encounter in Jesus' life when a fellow Jewish teacher comes up to Jesus and asks him, you know, in light of all that's wrong in the world, and they were under the thumb of Roman oppression, there was paganism and immorality and injustice all around them that's easy to see in the history books. In light of all this stuff that's wrong, Jesus, what, what does God want us to do? What do you think is the greatest commandment that God gave us? And Jesus said, the great commandment, the first and most important commandment is this, love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. First part, of, first part, love God entirely. Second part, Jesus said, is love your neighbor as yourself. The problem that we have is that we're not obeying these commandments. Our relationship with God is broken and interconnected with that. Our relationship with one another is broken. But Jesus was able to take this diagnosis to a place that Isaiah could not himself take it. Although Isaiah also can speak words of hope and look forward to God's salvation, Isaiah himself could not bring about the cure to what ails us. But Jesus can and did and does. In Jesus, God came to be with us when we could not ourselves be with God. When we had been separated from God, when we had broken our relationship with God, offended God by turning our hearts in rebellion against him, when we had turned away from God and could not reach him again ourselves, in Jesus, God came to be with us. And in the cross of Jesus, Jesus died for us to take the punishment for our sins, for all the rebellion against God, for all the offending God, for all the serving that which is not God, for all the injustice for all the greed by which we have hurt one another, for all the immorality by which we have objectified and used and wounded one another, for all that sin that justly deserves the punishment of God, Jesus came to take that punishment himself, to identify with us so fully, even unto death, that on the cross, the fundamental truth of the cross is that on the cross, Jesus takes what's ours and gives us what's his. And so he takes that punishment for us and gives us instead his own relationship with God. Not ours, but his. His own identity as son of God, as child of God, as heir of God's eternal kingdom. His own innocence and right relationship with God, he gives us. Jesus gives to us as a gift a reformed, not deformed relationship with God. 
And then not only does Jesus heal what's broken between us and our creator, but he also heals the relationships that are broken among us. Jesus comes not only saying, love your neighbor, but he comes making us brothers and sisters in him and therefore of one another in him. Jesus doesn't say, can you please, can you please see each other's brothers and sisters? Can you please treat each other that way? He says you are. You are children of God. You are brothers and sisters in the family of God. And he creates for us a new reality and then graciously invites us to live into it. Graciously invites us to begin to experience and live into now the world as God is making it to be forever and ever. And when Jesus has offered us this gift, this new creation of God, this new world, he has offered it to us and we receive this gift. And we respond to that gift of God by looking and listening to the words of Isaiah again. Hearing these words from the ancient prophet that are affirmed by Jesus, our Lord himself. And say, where is it that I am settling for less than this relationship with God that Jesus has brought into reality for me and made known to me? Where is it that I am still serving that which is not God? Where is it in my life where I am still sacrificing for, putting my hopes and dreams and believing that something else will bring me joy? Where am I still settling for that cheap imitation? And how quickly can I leave it behind? How quickly can I turn instead to the God who loves me and wants good for me? And where is it that this word from Isaiah still diagnoses or exposes the problem that I have in my human relationships? Where is it that I'm still settling for less than God's best there? Where is it that I still am being caught up in a system of greed or economic injustice? Where is it that I'm hurting people who I know and maybe people that I don't know? How is it that I'm caught up in that? How is it that I'm caught up in and participating in a culture of physical objectification and immorality? How is it that I'm allowing these good relationships that God has given us, these good gifts that God has given us, and I'm settling for a cheap substitute? Where is it that I'm caught up in that and participating in a relationship that's deformed? Instead, I want to turn away from that. How quickly can I say no to that and say yes to the good gifts and the good life that God has given us? We all find ourselves in that place. We all still have the opportunity to hear the words of Isaiah who calls us into the right relationship with God that Jesus has come to make real for us. To finish up today, I just want to share with you some final words. Actually, they come from the prophet Isaiah himself. It's a God-given vision, a vision of the future that God gave to the prophet Isaiah so, so long ago. And they're famous words. Some of these words from these few verses I want to share with you are so famous, they're actually inscribed in the stone of the building, the, the UN building in New York. It's a vision that God gave to the prophet Isaiah of all people in the world, not just one ancient nation, not just a few people now, but a vision of many people from every tribe and tongue, from every nation in the world, streaming to God. And in the imagery that the Isaiah used, streaming to the mountain of the Lord, not to any other God, but to the Lord himself, to learn the ways of God and to begin to live into the peaceful restoration of creation that God intends for us to enjoy and practice now and that he will accomplish at the last days. Let me share this passage with you. It's from Isaiah chapter two. It's verses two through five. You don't have to look it up. Let me just read it to you. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It'll be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, 
to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. And the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's close today by praying for God's gracious reign to come among us. We pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for knowing us. We thank you for your word. Your word that you've spoken in many and various ways through the prophets of old. And now you've spoken to us through Jesus, your son, our Lord. And God, we pray that you would work by your own presence. God, by your own Holy Spirit, that you would come into our lives and come into our communities and allow us to hear your word and see what's broken among us. Our relationships with one another and our relationship with you. And God, we pray that you would do your work in us as we surrender to you and invite you to create in our lives that relationship with you which you always intended and those relationships among us that you created us for. God, we trust you and we love you and we pray for your will to be done, that you would make it so. Lord, we live and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.